Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we're discussing a recent debate between Pastor Will Barlow and Carlos Jimenez, also known as Xavier, over the question, is the gift of tongues for today? So we're going to discuss the case for and against tongues and specifically address some real problems with Mr. Jimenez's approach. To be honest, this episode was really hard for me. In fact, I've agonized over it, telling myself the old adage, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. In fact, in the history of this podcast, going back over 500 episodes, I've never called someone out like I do in the conversation you are about to hear. And I hope to never need to do it again. But when you've got a bully on the playground, the situation doesn't get better by ignoring him. If you've got someone going up to kids, especially the new kid, and pushing them down, throwing sand in their eyes, or tripping them while they're trying to play, you should do something, right? Well, this is my attempt to stand up to a bully. He's not physically harming people, but he has caused much harm through his divisive behavior. I have raised my concerns over his behavior to him directly in the past, as well as to others in his family. And he continues judging and criticizing individuals and ministries in public via YouTube and social media. So it's only fitting that we respond in a public way so that others can be warned. How's that for an introduction? Here now is episode 525, Debating Speaking in Tongues with Pastor Will Barlow. Welcome, Pastor Will Barlow, back to Restitutio. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Sean, for having me. Last Sunday, you debated Carlos Jimenez of Restoration Fellowship on the question, is the gift of tongues for today? Could you talk a little bit about the backstory of this debate? Why did you do it? Uh, what was what was the story leading up to it? Sure, yeah. So Carlos and I have interacted some online, mostly Facebook. have interacted with him on that specific topic, different aspects of tongues, different claims that get made on Facebook or things like that. There was a, a roundtable discussion that happened about a year ago where Carlos essentially moderated a roundtable with uh, Sir Anthony Buzzard, with Ken LaPrade, and with Greg Dibel, all of whom essentially have the same position on tongues. So if people were looking for different perspectives, there wasn't, they were all pretty much agreed on, on everything. I see. And I, I think it, for me, it reflected a problem that there are other legitimate views on tongues I was invited to that conversation at the very last minute, but I didn't have time to prepare adequately for it. And so I declined the invitation. I also proposed alternative dates and alternative formats uh, where it'd be instead of one on three, more of a two on two kind of a deal. That was all shot down in the moment. And so time sort of passed. I was about a year ago. Time sort of passed. We kept engaging at various times. And Carlos did challenge me to a debate on Facebook in a Facebook comment. I don't know, this was probably nine or 10 months ago, I declined. Uh, he offered it again another couple of times. And finally, after the fourth or fifth time of having this conversation online, I was like, fine, you know, we will, we can have a debate. I have no real desire to, to debate you one-on-one -on, -one on this. 
I think a more of a roundtable kind of discussion would totally have been adequate to mm-hmm. meet the needs of this conversation. But he wanted a one-on-one debate, and so I agreed, and then pushed it out beyond the UCA conference because I was like, I am swamped until mid-October, so let's do it at the end of November. So that's why that's why we picked that date. He was accommodating on the time frame, and so then. What I basically did to prepare for the debate was I went back to that roundtable discussion and I watched it again and took detailed notes. I went to Greg Dibel's website and I prepared for uh, his particular interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13. And because I figured that's what Carlos would would go for in the debate. I just prepared that way. And, and I shot Carlos all my teachings on study-driven faith, which I have uh, as I mentioned in the debate, I have seven hours of teaching on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 that's available on Study Driven Faith that very clearly lays out my position on 1 Corinthians 13 and why I don't think that tongues have ceased. And that is the critical text in my mind. You know, leading up to the debate, we would interact. We'd, he'd, he'd ask me questions. We, we would discuss things. He'd ask me various questions that he wanted to bring up in the debate itself. So we, we worked through all of that. All fine, unusual, normal debate stuff. Nothing really out of the ordinary. Uh, until about the week of, um, he sent me a couple weird notes the, right before the debate. He asked me if I'd ever been water baptized, knowing that I come from a way background and that I probably hadn't been water baptized. And I assured him that I had about three years ago. And then he started asking me, like, who baptized me? And what was the specific baptismal formula and all this stuff? And I answered him truthfully. I, I, I don't have anything to hide. But it just really put me off. These are not questions related to the debate at all. They were questions about my background. I also felt like in the time leading up to the debate, especially like the day before and the morning of, he wrote, reached out to me and asked if it was okay for me to share my away international affiliation, my original religious affiliation for the first 30 plus years of my life. And I said that I was fine with doing that uh, because I, again, have nothing to hide. And my views have changed considerably since being in the way. And again, I I say that just like I said it the night of the debate, with humility and with respect, not wanting to uh, disrespect the people that I love and know that are still in the way and who are upstanding, uh, wonderful Christian people. So I I have no reason to discount people even when I do disagree with them on certain doctrinal stances. They made sure that I said that at the beginning of the debate. Tracy opened the debate by saying, hey, can you tell us about your way background? And then I'll start your time when you start your opening statement. I thought a couple of those things were very strange. These seem like strategies to discredit you because if you have a weak case, misdirection is going to be a key. If he can discredit you right in the beginning and say, oh, this guy is from some weird group. Nobody should listen to him. He's obviously wrong because you know he's guilty by association or... The genetic fallacies, you get this idea from an evil person or a questionable source, therefore the idea is wrong. But that's a fallacy. Hitler wore pants. Does that mean that pants are evil? No, I'm wearing pants right now. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) So, you know, these are very Mm -hmm. concerning because, like, there doesn't seem to be a desire for truth. It's more Mm -hmm. like just a desire to, you know, of course, everyone wants to make themselves look good in a debate. But sure, not everyone yeah. wants to make the other person look bad. That's and that correct. seems to be more where he was coming from. Yeah, and I think I took great pains in the course of the debate to limit my responses to either things that Carlos just said that I hadn't had a chance to interact with or the specific question that was at hand. On multiple occasions, there were tangents and side paths that were taken out of the way to either, like he said, discredit my background or to make fun of me 
or to do a number of different things that I thought were inappropriate in the context of a debate. You know, I'm, I'm here to talk about ideas. I'm here to talk about your interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, if it exists or not. Well, why do you think he wanted to debate you so badly? Because you turned him down over and mm-hmm. over. What's that all about? It belies an overconfidence in the person who's challenging. I mean, I think he he felt like he was going to easily win this debate. And so he wanted to debate me because if he if he can easily win a debate, then he doesn't have to have this conversation with me ever again. You know, he like we we have this conversation once. I start talking about it online again, and he can just be like, well, look, here's where I trounced Will on this online and totally made him get off his position. I, mean, I think that's the, the tactic that's being used. I don't think it was successful, but we're still dialoguing on Facebook this week about what happened in the debate. And I keep trying to educate him on debate theory and what actually happened in the debate. And, what, and we're going to talk about that, I think, in this conversation a little bit more later. Let's change gears for a moment and do me a favor and summarize for me your position on speaking in tongues. The debate question was, is the gift of tongues for today? Right. So your answer is yes, but yep. you know maybe you could just summarize a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, so there's, there's so many details about tongues that are given in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So in my opening statement, I spent a large portion of my time trying to show that my view of tongues is in particular a biblical view of tongues, that I pull my view directly from the scripture, specifically scripture in 1 Corinthians 14. But really, honestly, as it pertains to the question, are tongues for today, there's only one passage that really matters, and that's the end of 1 Corinthians 13, where it says that tongues will cease. And we have to understand, what does it mean when the perfect comes? Like, What is the perfect? When has it come? And I offered both the traditional cessationist view and the continuationist view. And I explained why I view the continuationist view of 1 Corinthians 13 to be a better take on 1 Corinthians 13. And just very briefly, what I believe there is that the perfect is Jesus. And then when the perfect comes, that's talking about the return of Jesus uh, to inaugurate the kingdom on earth. And that we will no longer need any of the charismatic evidences including speaking in tongues at that time, and that we actually we won't even need faith and hope anymore, as weird as that sounds, because that's what verse 13 says, that the greatest of these things is love. The, mm-hmm. Love is the greatest because it's the only thing that's eternal. It's, it's helpful now, and it's helpful in all of eternity as well. And so after offering a systematic theology of, of some sort of 1 Corinthians 13, what Carlos has to do in the debate is he has to offer a competing interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13. And he failed to do that. And so that's just a little bit about my interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13. Your view is that speaking in tongues is available today. It's available to all Christians or some Christians? I'm honestly agnostic on that question. He asked me you know, a couple of times about different views on the gifts and sort of ancillary ways, but it's unclear to me. The Bible doesn't seem to answer the question if everyone can have tongues or everyone can can do tongues. Well, the minimum is that some people can speak in tongues. Right. Some people... Perhaps all, but right. certainly some. Yeah, some people can. You believe that speaking in tongues is appropriate privately? Yes. In that arena, it doesn't need to be interpreted. But That's if correct. tongues are public, then they do need to be interpreted, whether by that person or someone else, which is... That's correct. Just a straightforward reading of 1 Corinthians 14. Correct. Can you summarize for me... 
what Carlos's case, because on the YouTube video, it says that he denied the gift of tongues is for today. So he's denying that the gift of tongues is for today. Uh, right. But he also denied being a cessationist, I think. So maybe That's you correct. could summarize his his position. Right. In all of the Restoration Fellowship videos that I watched on the subject adjacent to that roundtable that happened a year ago, which was, again, a Carlos kind of a thing he moderated and they put on and, and produced and so forth. The understanding that I had coming into the debate, what I expected Carlos to do was I expected him to use Greg Dybul's interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, which is like a backdoor tongues only cessationist kind of a view, which you can read more about on Greg's website. And I'm not, you know, I'm not here. I was prepared to, to discuss this Sunday night, but uh, we didn't get to it because Carlos actually said in, during the debate that he does not have an interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, that he doesn't know when the gifts in general will cease. He thinks that the gifts will be necessary in the kingdom. He explicitly said that it's possible that he's open to the gifts continuing into the kingdom, which is, of course, a longer view of the gifts than even I presented in the debate. In some sense, he was presenting himself as a, a hyper-continuationist, I suppose you could say in some sense. That's explicitly contradicted by the scripture. That's what is mean, interesting. It's, it specifically says tongues will cease. And, and so he's he's contradicting right. that for the eschaton. That, and that's a position I've never heard of. No, totally. And what I think is happening, and I, again, I, I, I hesitate to put ulterior motives onto Carlos that I can't definitively pin on him. But I, I do think what's going on is he realizes that his view is very difficult biblically and that people are going to pigeonhole him as a cessationist, which he says... He does not hold a cessationist view of 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, that's fine. But to go that extra step to be like a hyper-continuationist on 1 Corinthians 13 seems like an overreach and an overreaction and, and actually, like you said, a violation of the text. And so I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to extend an olive branch in some way to make his view look more believable or palatable. And I, I again, I don't think that that's successful. He can be a tongue cessationist in the way that Greg Dybul is a tongue cessationist, Greg Dybul has a very thorough theology of 1 Corinthians 13 that I, I happen to disagree with, but at least I appreciate the fact that Greg Dybul has a theology on 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Carlos offered no uh, explanation of 1 Corinthians 13 and, and no biblical reason why tongues should cease. And at that point, in my mind, the debate is over. But to understand that, you have to understand a little bit more about how a debate works, which I don't know if you want to talk about that now. Yeah, let me let me pause you on that. We'll come back to that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. this is a problem. From the debate, it seems to me that Carlos uh, is a continuationist. Basically, he af he affirmed that view, that yes, speaking in tongues is available today. However, according to even as it presently stands, and who knows if he'll go and change this because he does do that. He'll go and change things after the fact. But as it currently stands at the time of this recording, it says that he is denying. It says no, the, the yes position for Will Barlow and the no position for Carlos. So he's inconsistent on that just as a starting point. You know, so if he's if he's a continuationist, he believes speaking in tongues is available today, over against like the, the clear frame of the debate. He's not earnestly pursuing spiritual gifts. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 14:1 to be zealous for spiritual gifts. That is not a suggestion. That's a commandment of the Apostle Paul. It's to be taken seriously. Instead, what he's doing is he's criticizing spiritual gifts. He doesn't have a position himself as to they're not available. So that means he believes that they are available. 
but he's not pursuing it for himself. He's not pursuing speaking in tongues or prophecy or gifts of the Spirit. Instead, he's on the sideline criticizing others. And this is a part of a larger pattern that really concerns me about Carlos. It says in Galatians 5, 19-21, it lists out the works of the flesh. And at the end of that, it says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that's verse 21, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when I look at the works of the flesh there, I see several that are very relevant to this behavior, evidence in the debate, and many other places online. Specifically, rivalries, dissensions, mm. divisions, and possibly envy. You know, I can't see Carlos's heart, so I don't know if he is motivated by envy or jealousy. Those are both listed there. Uh, so I'll leave that to the side. But we do certainly see rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. And what is the goal of this debate? You know, it's not for him to convince you to his position or convince uh, people in the audience to his position because he doesn't have a position that right. I could find. His position is to say, you're doing it wrong. And that's not a position. That's just being a critical person causing mm. dissension. That is very concerning to me personally, having known Carlos for a long time and seeing this pattern steady over time is very concerning to me because, look, this is not me. This is the Apostle Paul. He's saying this is salvational. He's saying mm -hmm. that these kinds of behaviors are going to keep you out of the kingdom. And that to me is like, okay, I need to, I need to err on the side of grace like if I think I might be getting a little divisive or a little into a rivalry or a little into a dissension, something like, like I, I'm just going to steer way clear of it, which is why I haven't mentioned this about Carlos in the past. But I think we're at a point now where we just got to call a spade a spade because it is something that is affecting other Christians. It is a behavior that can serve as like a cancer in the body of Christ. I don't know yes. how else to say it, you know, but I'm very concerned yeah. after watching this debate in particular. In the context of the debate, what concerned me, and this this was not a major point because I, I did not keep hammering it home, but I did mention it once or twice, Carlos's use of scripture to indict tongues specifically was along the lines of testing the spirits. And, and Carlos did this a couple different times where he makes these leaps between what the Bible says and what he thinks we should do to enforce what the Bible is saying. And when we think about testing the spirits, Carlos's way of testing the spirits in the, in the context of speaking in tongues or glossolalia was to marshal all this linguistic, modern linguistic evidence that these aren't real languages. Mm, yeah. And in doing so, what he's done is he's bypassed the spiritual biblical way of actually testing the spirits, which again, I commented on this on a couple of occasions very briefly, and didn't elaborate. He is anachronistically reading a scientific proof of tongues into Deuteronomy about testing the spirits. This is incredibly, incredibly dangerous because it, he's not only doing that for his own belief, he's doing this to use it as a hammer against people like me who think that tongues are continuing. And he's doing it without offering any cogent biblical explanation for why tongues have ceased. And so to do that, he's actually elevating science above scripture. He's using scripture, he's twisting scripture to support that move. And I find that incredibly dangerous. And it's dangerous for the people who find that compelling. I think people that find that compelling should have their discernment checked. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm just going to be the first one to admit that I am a sucker for a scientific study. 
you know, oh, and sure. yeah. when Carlos brought that out, I was like, yeah, no, that's a good point, Carlos. Good point. But what you're what you're saying is that, that methodologically, this is really problematic because yes. now we're elevating scientific studies, which, of course, all of us who have lived through the pandemic just three, four short years ago, you know, like we know that science changes and, right. uh, you know, it, it sometimes it seems like it changes from day to day. Uh, so one study can be debunked by another study. They can find out that the control group was contaminated or that some sort of variable wasn't controlled for or factored in. And and then you get these meta studies and you know, it's just the nature of the beast. And it's not, yeah. I don't think it's useless or anything like that, but uh, I think we do need to be careful with it because there's a different sort of knowledge. It's a, it's a different sort of epistemic source than scripture. Scripture mm-hmm. is once for all, it's, it's delivered to us through the ages and it's unchanging. And so there is a, a sense of permanence and rootedness there. It's just in a different epistemic category than science, which is just variable and changing and approximating over time. And, and sometimes, you know, you get a revolution where we're like, oh, we, we've all been wrong about this for the forever. And like, it's really like that. Yeah, I think we have to be concerned about that. I hear what you're saying methodologically, but also we don't really do this with other stuff, do we? Do we say, oh, what's your evidence that prayer works? I'm not going to ever pray. I know the <laughs> Bible talks about prayer and Jesus taught to pray and so forth, but until you can give me a control experiment where it proves that God hears our prayers, I'm never going to pray. Mm-hmm. Who, like, that's, it seems like that's what he's doing here. He's like, I'm right? not going <laughs> to consider this at all until you can show me what language it is you're speaking and have right. an AI analyze your speech pattern and verify that it could plausibly be a language. The goalposts are completely, it's shifted from everything else in the faith. I tried to point out that he believes that God created the universe, even though there are pieces of evidence that suggest that God created the universe. I don't believe that because of the scientific evidence. I believe that because I have faith. He believes strongly in the coming kingdom of God. Uh, As I point out in the debate, what peer-reviewed study can he present about the resurrection of Jesus? And yet he believes in the resurrection of Jesus. That doctrine is a thousand million times more important than the doctrine of tongues. And yet he holds it without having any sort of scientific confirmation for that. Your analogy about prayer is poignant because they have tried to do, you know, double blind peer reviewed scientific studies on prayer that were largely inconclusive. And, Mm -hmm. and Richard Dawkins makes fun of Christians in the God delusion for that very fact. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to marshal the same kind of evidence against prayer that you can against tongues, then According to Carlos, if he's going to be consistent, we shouldn't believe in prayer either. Yeah, well, I think about knowing whether or not my wife loves me, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have access to her internal state of mind. You know, I can't say for sure she's not just tricking me and she has other kinds of motives. Like, I can point to evidence and be like, well, you know, she says she loves me and she treats me with kindness and she makes mm. me dinner. You know, I can I can point to things and say, oh, well, that's evidence. Just like when you speak in tongues, you can point to the actual sound of the words as evidence right. that you're speaking in tongues, right? But you don't yeah. know for sure. I don't know for sure that there's some sort of trickery going on with my wife. And you know what? I don't need to. I take it on mm. faith that right. what she's, because I trust her, what she says is what is true 
and she's not a deceiver, right? And so if God is going to set it up in such a way that like, there's all these scriptures that are pro-tongues, it says don't forbid speaking in tongues, it says don't quench the spirit, but there are also controls like test the spirits and, you know, let two or three speak, let another judge. Scripture is urging us to like explore this over against like John MacArthur and Carlos Jimenez and, and some others that are just like say, oh no, don't go over there. Don't go over there. Right. No, it, the weight of scripture is calling us to explore this, but also to do so with discernment. Yes. So I think that's probably some, something like the balanced view, but his methodology would just disprove everything. Marriage, faith in God. Yeah. If you want to be a genuine skeptic, you can question anything. You can question mm-hmm. that you even exist. Just ask Descartes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. It's, it's just not livable. So let's get to some specific points. In the debate, you guys talked a lot about self-translation. That was mm-hmm. kind of like his term for it, where he said, oh, well, Will Barlow and those people at Compass, and he also mentioned my church at one point, saying that we all believe as a policy that only the same person who speaks in tongues should also interpret that one person can't speak in their tongues and then another person interpret. Would you like to respond to that and just set the record straight? What is your position on that? Yeah, so my position is that both are permissible, that Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 14, 13, that if you do speak in a tongue, that you should pray to interpret. The way I read that is that if you've been given the legitimate gift of languages, that you should pray for the legitimate gift of interpreting or translating that language in a public meeting. Verses 26 to 28 in 1 Corinthians 14, leave it open for someone to interpret. And I think that someone could be the same person or that someone could be another person. At one point, it seems to give someone the title of interpreter in a meeting, which means that perhaps there are people that are specially gifted in interpretation. Uh, You could even probably read that as especially gifted even more than interpreting their own tongue. Like there might be people that be people that just are gifted interpreting their own tongue. And there might be people that are gifted interpretation to interpret other people's tongues. Right. We're modern Western scientific minded people. And, and this was not a modern Western scientific culture. It's an ancient Eastern. And they were comfortable with more gray spaces, I think, than we are. There's a lot of ambiguity here. We've got to, we've got to reconcile and got to deal with. But regardless, you know, he was trying to make a rhetorical point about how if we always do self-interpretation, that it makes Paul's encouragement to stay quiet a moot point. And I think that's wrong-headed because my point was, even if you know you can interpret your own tongue, which I believe I can speak in tongues and I believe I can interpret that tongue, then when you walk into a meeting, as long as the interpretation happens, that's what matters. That's what, that's what Paul's getting at. That's what matters in a meeting. Paul's not super concerned about who's doing the interpretation. If we could wake Paul up from the dead and say, hey, Paul, encompass Christian church when they do speak in tongues, which is honestly fairly rare these days, uh, when they do speak in tongues, they generally self-interpret. I think Paul would shrug and say, well, is it is the interpretation happening? Yes. Okay, great. I, I think it'd be a nothing burger for the Apostle Paul. Yeah. You stated in your series on the Holy Spirit, which if people are interested in, in Will's perspective on this, I would encourage you to listen to that. I'll put a, a link to it. That just in general, for practice at the church, you're expecting people to interpret their own tongues. I I have done something similar with this. I certainly wouldn't forbid it to be the other way. I think that, honest, to be completely honest, I think it would be awesome. I think it would be really cool to see it. Um, I just don't know how practically to do that in an open meeting 
where, you know, somebody gets up and they start speaking in a tongue. And then, you know, do we just like interrupt the person and be like, all right, can anybody interpret this? You know, this just makes for a zoo, you know, and that's what Paul's trying to avoid here. Uh, So I think if you had somebody that said, hey, pastor, I have the gift of interpretation. And, you know, if you have anybody that has a tongue and they, you know, they're not able to interpret for some reason, there could be really interesting scenarios where we set something up like that. Generally, just for the sake of the spirit of 1 Corinthians 14, of like avoiding chaos and disruption, it does make it easier from a practical point of view to have the same person do it. And the scripture says it both ways. So it's like, to me, it's not an issue. Like, it's not saying you can't do it this way. It's just saying you could do it this way or you could do it that way. Correct. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't condemn another church that did it a different way, so long as they're not all talking over each other. Right. And so long as there's some sort of interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Yeah. What about the actual interpretation being a message from God to the people? Because that's something he brought up as well. Uh, could you get into that a little bit? There's you know different views on this. I know that the way taught, and I think the mainline Assemblies of God church has taught that when someone speaks in tongues and they interpret tongues, generally it sounds like uh, many people have experienced prophecy in a charismatic meeting like you'd find in the way or in my church or in what I've heard in your church too, Sean, is it when you speak in tongues and interpret it, I've often heard a message from God to the people. And what I suggest in the Corinthian seminar and what, what Gordon Fee, despite his Assemblies of God affiliation, contends in his commentary on Corinthians, is that that's really not what's in view in 1 Corinthians 14, that Paul uses prayer language to describe tongues or praise language basically every time he mentions tongues. And that, that agrees with what the book of Acts says about it too. Yeah, you know, it's it says, very consistent you know, they, with Acts. Yeah. Right, yeah. So you, I think I counted it up that of the 20 or so odd verses that t- even talk about tongues in the in the New Testament, eight of them, I believe, specifically reference tongues as prayer or praise. And it's always in those terms, prayer or praise. Generally speaking, what I would expect is if someone were to speak in a tongue and then interpret, they, it should sound like a prayer, an inspired prayer or praise to God. It should be directed towards God. Now, are there people at my church right now who have heard my teaching on this and through their consciences still disagree with me on this? Yes, there are people that still disagree with me. And my view of pastoral ministry is that it's not my responsibility to tell people what to believe. Um, I, I can only teach what I believe personally, because that's my conscience that I'm dealing with at that point. Uh, but that if people disagree with me because of their conscience, uh, then we can agree to disagree on whatever that t- topic is. And there are several people in our church who speak in tongues and interpret, and it still sounds like a message from God. And in this, I, I agree with what John Shaneheit has said about this. Is this strictly speaking wrong? Is it sin to do it this way? No, I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's sin. Is it the most biblical way of doing it? I think the answer is no. There are non-biblical things that are still nonetheless right to do uh, or still acceptable to do. And so that's why I try to use words like generally. Generally speaking in tongues with interpretation should be an interpreted prayer or praise. Am I saying that it's never God's will that it could be a message to the people? No. I mean, God is bigger than the boxes I can make of God. And so I can never definitively say. But what I can definitively say, I believe, is that the Bible doesn't present that that's what tongues with interpretation should be. 
I believe that tongues with interpretation should be interpreted prayer or praise. That's how the Bible describes tongues. Would you say that when somebody speaks in a tongue and then brings forth a message, that what they're doing is speaking in tongues and then prophesying? That's possibly one explanation. I'd say biblically speaking, that's probably the most accurate thing we could say about it. But I, I would still, I think, leave the door open for God to do God things beyond, yeah. you know, beyond the Bible. It never says tongues with interpretation is never going to be a message from God. Now, if we had right. that scripture, then we right. could definitively say, right? But. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. And I appreciated your response to like the all nine, all the time approach. Right. Oh, no, I, I believe there's actually 47 uh, gifts of the Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> or no, not that you gave a number, but like, you know, who's to say how many gifts of the Spirit there are and, you know, whether or not they would change over time, given the need of the moment and walking with God, stepping out in faith, having the courage to say, you know what, here I am, send me, you know, God, if you want me to speak a foreign language I never studied, I'll do it. If you want me to speak a word, if you want me to discern spirits, whatever. I think it's part of the legacy of early Christianity too, not just in the in the New Testament, but also within early church history, that there was more courage and there was more faith to step out and walk by the Spirit. And, and I think that's exciting. That's a big part of Christianity. It's not just like, oh, I happen to also believe that God is alive today and doing stuff. No, that's like a that's a big deal. So there was this issue of that he brought up of saying you believe that tongues are the sign that somebody's saved. He said something along those lines, didn't he? Or someone did. Someone asked the question. I think, well, maybe he didn't it. say yeah. that about you, but he said that yeah. that's that's a view. Some uh, people view it that way. Yeah, yeah, I think I think uh, the Universal Pentecostal Church might hold to that position. Mm-hmm. They call it the doctrine of initial evidence, and mm-hmm. they actually separate. What happens at conversion from the gift of tongues that some people have and some people don't have or something like that. So like everybody speaks in tongues when they first believe or when they're first baptized or something like that. And then you get a, a second blessing maybe if you're called to, to be a tongue speaker. But that's not your view. No. What's your view? No, my view is that tongues is a is a supernatural gift of God. And again, I'm agnostic on whether 1 Corinthians 12... At the end of the chapter, he says, you know, are all apostles, are all prophets? And the answer is implied, no, not all are apostles, not all are prophets. And he doesn't say can all speak with tongues. He says, do all speak with tongues. And I think that leaves the door open for tongues to be something like a, uh, I think Steve Gregg has called it a uh, universal gift. But this is where the Bible doesn't really answer the questions that we would like them. You know, we, we come to a text with our questions that we want answered, and the Bible just isn't interested in answering that question. You know, I tend to take the rhetoric of like, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. Paul wouldn't be dunking on people who couldn't do something. Like, like imagine imagine you're at, at an NBA basketball game and there's an NBA player there who's 6'10 and he looks at the crowd of all people, you know, you're in my height and age and, and uh, disposition. You know, I could never dunk a basketball. I'm 5'9". I could touch the rim in college, but those days are long gone, I assure you. <laughs> but imagine uh, Giannis or any one of these other big NBA guys comes into a room full of people like us and says, you know, I thank God I can dunk and you can't. You know, it's like, well, okay. You can imagine someone like that doing it, I suppose, because you could think maybe they're that arrogant or maybe they're that brash or whatever. But I think we assume a level of arrogance and brashness on Paul 
uh, if we don't leave the door open that maybe everyone could do it. But I, I also think that the Bible doesn't answer that question. That you know, that's the scripture that Steve Gregg will point to. That's the scripture I'll point to. That maybe everyone gets tongues, but maybe everyone doesn't. I, I certainly know not everyone experiences it, and that's certainly what Paul says at First Corinthians twelve. Can so. you? What was that verse again? That you uh, first Corinthians 14, 18. I think, my God, I speak in tongues more than you all. It's an odd oh, thing to say okay. to a church right. if they couldn't do it. Um, that to me could be taken a couple different ways. It you certainly know. could. It certainly could. Yeah, it could but, be speaking more communally than just like, yeah, I mean, there's something rhetorically going on there. He's not just absolutely. dunking it. He's not just dunking sure. on that. Yeah, you're right about that. But uh, do you believe that those who speak in tongues are superior to those who don't that there's no. a, a two class system no and have we, you, have we you ever taught that <laughs> no no we, we went back and forth on this in the debate and you know, it's like he's he's prodding me for scientific evidence i gave him scientific evidence of the benefits of tongues he turns my benefits of tongues into uh, ah see you do believe in a two class christian system of those who get these benefits from speaking in tongues and those who don't get these benefits from speaking in tongues and I responded by saying, I believe that every gift of God has benefit. Yeah, I mean, people that can prophesy can do amazing things for the church. People that receive messages of wisdom and messages of knowledge, they provide benefit to the church in unique ways. People who are gifted pastors uh, or gifted teachers, they provide benefits to the body of Christ that other people don't do. Uh, there's beauty in the fact that we're not all the same. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 12. For Carlos to say that I'm going way beyond what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, which Paul's point is that there are differences and there's still unity and there's beauty in our differences. That's all that I meant. So yes, I, I do believe that some people do actively speak in tongues and some people obviously don't actively speak in tongues. I think there's benefits to the people that do actively speak in tongues and I'm unapologetic for that. Uh, yeah. Just like Paul's unapologetic about all the other benefits of all the other gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. Let's talk about that verse. Maybe you can remind me where it is, where you were talking about private tongues. What was that verse? It was it's 18 and 19. It's actually okay. the, the same verse. And nevertheless, uh, in the assembly, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding than 10,000 words in a tongue. Okay. That's so you and he really had a disagreement over this verse. What you were saying is that because he says in the church, well, in verse 18, he says, I speak in tongues more than all you knuckleheads. Uh, right. Just kidding. He doesn't say knuckleheads, <laughs> but I speak in tongues more than all of you Corinthians. And then he says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 words. So your question to Carlos was, okay, well, if he speaks in tongues more than all, all of them, you know, regardless of how much of a rhetorical hyperbole might be going on here, okay? But, like, yeah. let's just take it at face value. He speaks in tongues more than they do. Where's he doing that if he's only if he's not doing it in church? And Carlos's response was, oh, he must be doing it in the synagogue. Right. Do you remember that? I do remember that, yeah. Wait a second. They have speaking in tongues in the synagogue? Like, what are you talking about? No, like if you're not doing it in church, you're obviously doing it in private. Maybe you're in the synagogue, but you're doing it privately in your mind as opposed right. to out loud. Let, let me just get your comments on that because like that was something that was like pretty clear and it didn't it, I don't think he really got it, even though you no. repeated it a few times. 
And he got asked it in the audience Q&A at the end of the debate as well. You know, someone posed it to him in a slightly different way. And, you know, he still fumbled it, I think. The bottom line is, and I, I pointed this out in the debate, but the, the bottom line is, is that generally speaking, we are taught to pray two ways. We're taught to pray privately. That's what the our Lord Jesus explicitly says in Matthew, mm-hmm. that we're to pray at home in our closets where only our Father see us, sees us. We're not to pray out loud on the street corner like the Pharisees and the hypocrites do, okay? That's explicitly what Jesus taught. Whatever Carlos has to do to get out of the obvious implication of private tongues, he has to provide a reasonable other public context that would require interpretation for his theory that it, since all tongues are public, all tongues must be interpreted. And I just don't think that he can do that. You know, the, the bottom line is, and I push him on this repeatedly, is that there's only two places we're taught to pray. We're taught to pray at home, or like you said, in our minds when we're in public or in a public place, uh, to ourselves, as it says later in the chapter, or we're taught to pray in a church meeting, in an assembly of believers. Those are the places we're taught to pray. Now, obviously, there are times when we could pray for someone in a public place. Like you, you see someone on a park bench and they're distressed and they want to pray with you, go for it, pray with them. I'm not saying that like that's against what Jesus says or against what the Bible says about prayer. That's not what I'm suggesting. But it would also, I think Carlos would have to demonstrate that that's sufficiently public to meet the requirements for all tongues being public and therefore all tongues being interpreted. If he can't do that, if he can't prove that there's another greater context that Paul means there, I think our default assumption has to be that Paul's talking about his private prayer life. And to that point, I pointed out, again, there's like six times in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul uses prayer language or praise language to describe tongues. Where do we do that? We do that in our private prayer lives if we're not doing it in the church, by and large. And had he mentioned private prayer in 1 Corinthians 14? In certainly in verse 28 and 29, which Jerry Werwell pointed to in the in the chat, you know, at the end of the debate, he asked a question about that. Oh, That's yeah. certainly speaking to yourself yeah, let, in the middle of the yeah, assembly. Let me uh, yeah. let me read that out. First Corinthians 14, 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So that's a that's a clear use case of speaking in tongues privately rather than publicly and speaking in tongues without interpretation uh, because it's not public, so you don't need to interpret it. Yeah, that's that's really good. And I, I do like verse 29 as well about, you know, let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that's probably something that's good because you're not advocating the view that all tongues are legitimate. That's you correct. said yeah. very clearly taking a pretty strong break from your past on this, I think, that uh, even demons could inspire false tongues. Absolutely. Or, yeah. you know, simulate, simulate you know, foreign language, yeah. or, you know, maybe wouldn't say it's actual tongues. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's really something. The other thing I pointed out, which is important, is in verse 13, it, Paul says, let the one who speaks in tongues pray that he may interpret. And I, I know that there's multiple ways of interpreting that verse, so I think it's hard to lean too heavily into that verse. But I think that verse is indicating that there were people in the Corinthian church who had the legitimate gift of tongues, but had not evidenced the legitimate gift of interpretation. Of course, in that context, we could assume that they would have known in that kind of a church who could interpret tongues so they could bring forth tongues in a meeting, knowing that someone could theoretically interpret it. But you know, someone did ask the hypothetical, like, can someone uh, just have the gift of tongues? Yes. I think first, you know, first Corinthians 14, 13 makes that clear. 
One of the other things that came up was this concern over non-Unitarian Christians who mm-hmm. manifest the gifts of the Spirit. Your opponent was talking about uh, Charismatic Catholics or Pentecostals and people from other denominations. He actually mentioned Mormons as well. I never heard of Mormons speaking in tongues. Maybe they do. Who knows? Basically, what you said was, well, if somebody follows Jesus and God wants to bless them with the gift of the Spirit, then why, why wouldn't I believe that that's genuine? He did not accept that. He's just like, no, these people don't hold to this doctrinal package that I define as salvational, and therefore God cannot possibly work with them in any way whatsoever. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe I'm overstating that a little bit there, but I'm curious about your comments on that uh, as yeah. far as like, you know, if you have people with different beliefs, even on big subjects that do still experience, yeah. and it's not just tongues, they'll experience, experience healings or sure. uh, predictive prophecies in some cases. Yeah. And I'm not prepared to say that's all demonic. Right, sure. I, I don't know what you yeah. think. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I worded my answer very carefully. I, I did not use any denominational names specifically. I just said anyone who's filled with the Spirit of God who actually follows Jesus, God wants to work with them through the Spirit. You know, And I said it very clearly. And I think the first comment I have is that my answer was completely twisted by Carlos. He did not uh, take the time or the patience to understand. And I think I think it's a theme with this debate. I think I counted something like 13 times or it's certainly upwards of 10 times where he either deliberately or possibly not deliberately in some of these cases misrepresented what I said in a way that completely twisted what I was saying. We've talked about a couple of those already. That's concerning. Ironically, what was going on in the chat, which I looked at later when I rewatched the debate, a friend of mine who lives here locally, I just had coffee with him yesterday. Uh, He is a Trinitarian. He currently attends a Methodist church, although he's attended different churches in the past. He says he once went on a mission trip and supernaturally spoke Spanish to share the gospel with a group of people in the country that he was uh, on the mission trip for and has never since been able to replicate the experience. Do I think that that's a legitimate tongue? Yes. Yes, I do. And I know this guy. He's not a crazy guy. He's a math nerd like me. He's an actuary and uh, or former actuary now. Uh, he works in the finance side now. He's not a dummy. He's not a dullard. And he cares deeply about the truth. He cares deeply about the Bible. And he does not come from a charismatic background. He was not expecting this to happen. It just happened. And he shared his testimony in the chat uh, live during the debate, which I thought was very bold of him to do so with all that was going on in that chat. Yeah, that, that was something that Carlos asked you. It's like, show me the evidence. Where's the right. evidence? You have to right. show me that this has happened and it's been validated. And, right. you know, there it is. You know, I, right. I know I know of other stories uh, of individuals that have had similar kinds of things. Greg Dibel himself, who yes. I think is mostly against the practice of tongues or, or the availability of the gift of tongues, would still make room because he's heard stories and on his side of the world, <laughs> over there yes. in Australia or up in Papua New Guinea or whatever, Papua New Guinea, where there, yeah. yeah, there was this same kind of phenomenon that occurred. And look, if God created the universe, for him to give someone the ability to speak a foreign language without learning it is just not that hard. No. <laughs> you know? No. Yeah. That's the literal thought that I had. And of course, I, I could not respond to Carlos because that was the last question. I got the first crack at it, not the last crack at it. So Carlos got to give the last word. But I, what I really wanted to say 
if I, if I could have piped up for just five seconds, what I would have said is, Carlos, it sounds like my God is bigger than your God. That's really, to me, that sums up the whole debate is my God's bigger because he can work within people who have things wrong. Your God can only work with people who have all these doctrinal things right. And he would probably honestly leave me off that list. And he might leave you off that list too. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah, and this is a this is a major concern with Mr. Jimenez is that he is always looking to find an area of disagreement. The classic church history definition of this kind of individual is a heresy hunter. Let's just find one thing we disagree on, and then let's focus on that, and then let's let's expose you. Let's expose right. you as as having this this flaw. And this is that work of the flesh of rivalries and divisiveness and dissensions. And it is got to go. And I, I hope to God that he repents of this because it's, it is not a small deal. You know, we look at idolatry, prostitution, somebody who watches porn, somebody that cheats on their spouse, right? And we say, oh my goodness, these are really big things. And, you know, they're going to keep you out of the kingdom. Uh, but this other stuff is right in that same list. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in the same list as orgies and idolatry. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> you can't say it doesn't matter. Well, do you have any concluding thoughts on just your debate in general or uh, the future as far as this subject or anything else? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's just like a general comment I have about debate. I was a debater in high school. I debated over 100 times. I understand debate theory very well. And I understand that many of the people that watch debates don't have that kind of a background in debate. You know, when it comes to classical you know, debate theory, what happened when I debated Carlos and I don't say this because I think I'm right. I say this because of the debate theory. It was a clear victory on my part. And it was because the way that Carlos formulated his argument, he didn't really answer no to the question. He answered like a maybe with a question mark, but I don't believe it kind of a thing. We have to be careful in the Unitarian community at large with who we're allowing to represent us in these types of debates. Because these kinds of flaws, one of the reasons why I was reticent to debate Carlos on this is because I don't think really honestly, and I don't, I don't want this to sound mean or judgmental, but I don't think that as a debate coach, I don't think that Carlos should be debating people because he doesn't have some of the characteristics that you need to have in someone who debates. And I've watched several of his debates uh, with Trinitarians, for example. I agree with Carlos that the Trinity is wrong. And I would say that he handily lost those debates on a, on a tactical level as well. When you think about that as the minority view facing a larger world that already disagrees with us, already wants to shout us down, already wants to, to label us as heretics, to have someone representing our community who doesn't understand basic debate theory and who can't handle themselves in a debate. They can't actually deal with the person's arguments. Instead, they keep going back to their one or two, three points they think they're winning instead of engaging with their opponent. They can't hear what their opponent is saying, but misrepresenting them. I mean, he misrepresented me over 10 times in our debate. Wow. He's done that with other people countless times I've watched in other debates with Trinitarians. My simple call beyond your general call for Carlos to repent, um, my specific call would be that we encourage Carlos to take a break from debating and possibly a permanent one, that he should allow other people to put forward our view publicly, like Dale Tuggy, like Dr. Dustin Smith, um, like you. Dustin Smith did a great job in that last debate. Yeah. He did. Phenomenal, phenomenal job. Yeah. And so anyway, that's the takeaway point I did. I, I'm happy to engage with him this one time. I'm happy to walk anyone through the finer points of what we just discussed about debate theory in a longer form, you know, kind of a way. If people want to reach out to me, that's great about that. I'm, I'm happy to have those conversations. But, but classically speaking, Carlos is not a good debater and it's a bad witness for our community. 
Yeah. Well, let, let me uh, just redirect us for a moment back to tongues and uh, just ask yeah. you the question. What would you say, just because we're about out of time here, winding things down, what would you say to somebody who says to you, I hear what you're saying, Pastor Will, about tongues. You have a biblical case, but I'm just uncomfortable with it. It's weird. Mm. It just doesn't seem right to me or whatever. Like, what, How would you work mm. with somebody like that? Yeah, God's done all sorts of things that make me uncomfortable in the Bible. I mean, they're passing out handkerchiefs, healing people at one point. Peter's shadow is healing people at one point. Uh, Saul, the king in the Old Testament, apparently goes into a trance and prophesies with prophets all day long. Uh, David dances. <laughs> and I think he was naked. naked. Was it yeah, so he was naked. naked and David was almost naked when he's dancing the ark back into town. Uh, I mean, look, God does. So your response is at least we're not naked. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> it could I, be worse. <laughs> I mean, look, uh, the, I guess the point that I'm trying to make here is, is that I'm uncomfortable with some of these things. I can understand that you're uncomfortable about tongues. I grew up around tongues. And so that's probably why I don't think it's quite as weird as many people think that, you know, that it is. But what it takes in those kinds of situations is for someone to take a, a genuine, pure hearted, true seeking approach to it. And I would say, look, give it time. Come watch what we do at Compass. Go watch what they do at Living Hope or go to a Spirit and Truth conference or whatever the case might be where you might come across these types of things. Give yourself some time to work through it on an emotional, practical level. For Sam Storms, for example, he grew up in a cessationist church and he decided to start praying for the gift of tongues and it took him a long time. And eventually God gave it to him supernaturally one night. Then he didn't do it for 20 years because of the repercussions of that socially. And so then, but then God gave it to him again. And so, you know, I, I think there are people that have struggled with it and have had to work through their objections, uh, either social objections or psychological objections or whatever the case might be. And I would just say, look, God will work these things through in your heart when the time is right and when it's peaceable for you. And so if you're not ready, you're not ready. And I'm not even saying that for someone who wants to, to, to do it. I'm saying that for someone who would even want to come into a community like mine that practices it on some level. Yeah. And what would you say to somebody who says, oh, I've pursued this, I've prayed for it. Like John Piper, for example, has talked about this, that he's right. prayed for the gift of tongues and he's totally open. He's non He's not only non-resistant, he's, he's open arms, like, I want this, I'm happy to have it. And it's just mm -hmm. not happened for him. Would yeah. you, what, what would you say to somebody like that? There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your experience with God that perhaps, like I said, I, I hold the idea that tongues is a universal gift very openly as a, an academic possibility. Practically, uh -huh. I know it's not true. And so not everyone's going to do it. And so for the people like John Piper that have never experienced it, but are open to it, I say, well, keep praying and maybe something else will happen. Or maybe God will show you another way to serve. Maybe yeah. your way to serve is not by speaking in tongues or Maybe it's another gift, uh, another calling that God's put in your life. Very good. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today. And people can follow up with you at your website, studydrivenfaith.org. Did I get that right? That's right. Yeah. And if they want to know more about Compass Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, they can go to compasslou.org. Yep. That's L-O-U for uh, Louisville. I have to learn how to say that as a, as a Yankee. You know, it's taken a lot of practice. <laughs> but uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Sean, for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, that brings this interview to a close. What did you think? Come over to restitutio.org and find episode 525, Debating Speaking in Tongues, 
with Will Barlow and leave your feedback there. Now, I would like to take a moment and address another issue related to Carlos Jimenez and his discernment ministry that criticizes and tears down the work of others. But before I do, I want to make clear I'm not criticizing Restoration Fellowship in general and certainly not Sir Anthony Buzzard, who has done so much incredible work over the years and to whom I at least owe a great debt of gratitude for how he has taught and mentored me in my early years when I attended the Bible college where he used to teach. And I have expressed my concerns to him directly in years gone by when Carlos evidenced similar behavior. This recent issue of Carlos is particularly concerning to me because he was criticized in the Unitarian Christian Alliance, also called the UCA, and that's an organization that I'm a co-founder in and am currently serving on the volunteer board of. So I wanted to address this, and he essentially made two main points of criticism against the UCA. And again, I would not even respond to this if people weren't taking it seriously and if people weren't, on the basis of Carlos's criticisms, expressing serious concerns about the UCA. So the first point that he makes is that he accuses the UCA of elevating Unitarianism to the level of the gospel, and that the organization, the UCA organization, is wrong to focus on a single issue. And I just want to respond to both of these. Uh, Carlos, of course, has brought these up numerous times, but so have others. And I think some people are genuine. I think some people are just criticizing because of other reasons. I can't see people's hearts, but I just want to respond to these. So on the first point, and, and for the record, I'm not responding in any kind of official capacity on behalf of the UCA. This is just my own opinion on my podcast. Uh, so take it or leave it for what that means. So anyhow, on his first point, that the UCA elevates the oneness of God to the level of the gospel, this is false. This is a false accusation. It is simply not true. The UCA does not take a position on whether or not believing in Unitarianism is salvational. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the information you have to believe to be saved, right? So some who are part of the organization, some UCA members, believe that one must understand that God is one to be saved and that the belief in the Trinity is a heresy so bad that it excludes you from eternal life. Honestly, I have no idea what percentage of the UCA holds to that more hardline view, but I know there are plenty of them. Many others in the UCA, including Dale Tuggy, the chairman of the board, are convinced that Trinitarians are legitimately saved. And, and in fact, he presented on that this year at the UCA, though that presentation is not yet available on the UCA YouTube channel. So anyhow, it's, it's an open question in the UCA whether or not you believe that Unitarianism is required for salvation. Some believe it, some don't, and the UCA officially does not take a position on that subject. Now, ironically, so far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, Carlos does believe that holding to Unitarianism is necessary for salvation, or to flip it the other way around, that Trinitarians are not going to be saved. In other words, he's accusing the UCA of the very belief he has. This kind of gaslighting is deeply troubling. And maybe I'm wrong. I will be the first to admit that maybe Carlos has changed his mind on this issue or that issue. All I can say is, based on his track record, uh, that it sure seems like he's the one that's elevating this to the level of gospel. All right, now on the second issue, 
He says that the UCA is wrong for not promoting other important beliefs, like the kingdom of God coming on earth, and for that reason, no one should join the UCA, or no one should become a member. Now, the UCA is not a church or a denomination. It's a parachurch organization. It's a single-issue advocacy group. Maybe a good comparison would be like a pro-life advocacy group or a Christian health insurance program that allows people to join. Why should the UCA need to promote other doctrines beyond its single-issue focus? That's my question. When I joined a gym, I didn't check to see if everyone there agreed with my religious convictions. In fact, I assume that most people, if not all there, do not agree with me. And you know what? I'm fine with that. The gym I have a membership in is there for me to work out. That's it. I'm there for a single reason. When I became a Prime member of Amazon, I knew that I disagreed greatly with the CEO's beliefs on most things. Why did I still join Amazon's membership? Because I wanted to buy stuff from them, and they had good prices and fast shipping. I'm also a member of multiple biblical language groups. These groups do not talk about theology. They simply encourage and enable me to work on my languages. Does that mean that individuals in these language groups don't value theology? Of course not. This is just not the function of that organization or the purpose of these organizations. So the Unitarian Christian Alliance does not have a burden to advocate any beliefs beyond Unitarianism. Carlos doesn't like that? Okay, fine. Maybe he wants to only have memberships of organizations that share all of his beliefs. That's his prerogative. But what breaks my heart, and this is what's gotten me so riled up, is that his divisiveness and criticisms are turning others away from getting the help and support they need. You see, if you join the UCA, assuming you are a Unitarian, if you're not a Unitarian, then, then don't worry about it. But if assuming you are a Unitarian, if you join the UCA, you put yourself on the map, and then others can find you in your area who are also Unitarian Christians. Additionally, members enjoy online encouragement and support through the UCA's social media accounts and YouTube and so forth. So so even if you don't find somebody in your local area through the UCA directory, you can at least come to the conference once a year. You can at least make friends with people online who can encourage you and answer questions that you have. Making people who are already an excluded and sometimes persecuted religious minority to feel more isolated is obviously wrong. Carlos, please stop exacerbating people's isolation. If you don't want to join the UCA, fine, don't you join the UCA. But criticizing the organization because it elevates the oneness of God to the level of gospel, which it doesn't, and because the organization should teach the whole counsel of God as if it's a church, these are invalid criticisms. So I just wanted to say my piece on that. Enough said. I would absolutely love to, quite frankly, just delete this episode entirely because Carlos got in touch with me and he said, you know what? I have been divisive and I really need to stop. I think that's pretty unlikely, but I, I, would, love to, I would love to find out that he, he said, you know what? Enough is enough. This is not Christian behavior and I really need to stop. And I would love to delete this episode. I would, I would just love to, to, to make it go away and never think about it again. But until that day comes, somebody's got to say something. Somebody's got to stand up. And, you know, I know there will be consequences for this. I know people will be upset at me for doing this sort of a thing. And I hope to never do it again. But I did it. It's done. And so am I with this episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, uh, check out our website at Restitutio.com. 
Org. I expect there will be lots of lively conversation there. And uh, hey, also one last thing about me, I'm correctable. I know I've been wrong in the past. And if I am proven to be wrong on this, I will absolutely own it. That's, that's not an issue because I believe the truth has nothing to fear.